episode of The Claws Corner. Today's guest is a cave explorer that I first met while vacationing with my wife in South Dakota. I began telling him about my adventure as part of the Wind Cave Wild Cave Tour, and he told me how he got his start spelunking and some of the exciting, exciting explorations that he has been on. So I knew immediately that he would make a great guest. So without further ado, please welcome Chris Pelzarski to The Claws Corner. Chris, how are you? Hey, great, Rich. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, yeah. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, I met you several years ago. I was on vacation in South Dakota, and I went on this wind cave. It was called the Wild Cave Tour. For you, it was probably nothing, but for me, it was great. <laughs> go 200 feet underground and go through all these little dark caverns and holes. And I don't know who I was speaking with, but they said, if you want to know more about this cave, there's this great guy. He works at this restaurant. So my wife and I said, hey, let's take a walk down there. We did. And it was funny. You happened to be the person that waited on us. We started talking and I had you on my other show, which unfortunately all the audio was lost, but now it's even better because I love YouTube. I love Zoom and a lot more people see it. So welcome back. Hey, thanks. <laughs> so I mentioned the wind cave and that's in South Dakota. Very recently, you did some explorations there. Tell me about that. Yeah, we did. So uh, we went with um, Dr. Hazel Barton. Um, she is uh, a cave explorer, caver, um, and also actually she's, she's one of the world's leading cave microbiologists. She runs a lab in Ohio. Um, she has this area that she's been working on in Wind Cave. Um, now, I suppose I should kind of explain what I mean by an area that, that she's working on. Some of these massive caves in the United States, um, they, can, they can amount to hundreds of miles of cave passage. And uh, Wind Cave in particular, it's actually, <clears throat> it's a very complex maze cave. Um, it has nearly 160 miles of cave passage. Um, but believe it or not, all 160 miles of that is located under one square mile of land. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, and 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 it's not, a, but it's so it's like a honeycomb, but it's not like a honeycomb where everything just connects. It's it's like a honeycomb where you might go this way for a thousand feet before you find a hole that goes up, before you can go back this way, before you find a hole that goes down to a, a much bigger room below everything. You know, it's it you're you're going around in circles when you're crawling around in wind cave, and um. Without the work of past explorers, you would never be able to reach the, the fringes of what's been explored in the, in the cave. So um, the, the tricky thing about exploring in Wind Cave is that very, very small holes ca can lead to, to a great amount of cave passage. And uh, sometimes they're so obscure, these little tiny holes, you know, you're in a great big passage, say you're in a passage 30 feet tall and 20 feet wide, and you're walking down it, and you can see 100 feet, you think, well, that's where all the cave is going to be down there in that black area. And, you know, eventually that comes to an end, right? And it turns out the way on to a bunch more cave is through this little tiny basketball sized hole off on the sidewall behind a rock that you didn't even notice when you walked by. And there's thousands of places like that in Wind Cave. And so people develop, um, people kind of, explorers who uh, volunteer for the National Park Service, 
they develop areas of interest that they think, okay, I, I want to go push this area. I want to go see if this cave goes anywhere. And we call, in cave exploration, we call a passage that um, no one has ever been in that we know of. Um, I guess I shouldn't say no one's ever been in it, but I, I should really say that hasn't been mapped. Um, if no one's mapped that passage, we call it a lead. Like, um, in other words, it's, it's like, uh, you know, think like the detective movie is like, Hey, I've got a lead, you know, where, where's the cave? Oh, I got a good lead. It's here. Uh, like a good idea of where the cave might go. And, um, so there's like thousands of leads in the cave documented on a map. And you can go to any one of those leads in the cave. Um, if you're, you know, in the program and uh which you need to be highly qualified to be in um but uh you, you go to these leads and you don't know if they're going to go 20 feet in a, in a belly crawl and come to an end or if you're going to squeeze under a ledge and under a wall and and find one of the newest biggest rooms in wind cave and so um hazel barton had had this area that she had been working on hoping that it would go somewhere um called the well, it it was kind of part of a, a, an earlier breakout called the uh, the Western Fringe, and then um, right before COVID started, um, she got into a passage known as uh, that 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 she actually called the Revenge Fantasy. Um, I'm not entirely sure what the story behind that one is, <laughs> um, and we do yeah we do get to name we do get to name passages when we find them, um, so. Uh, <clears throat> She makes this, you know, cool discovery and, and there's lots of little passages off to the side to discover. But the really cool thing about this area is that it has airflow and airflow is very significant in a cave because, well, so this particular type of air, airflow is called barometric and you can think of a, a barometer, you know, it has to do with air pressure, right? Um, barometric air occurs in, in large caves when there's a great volume of cave passage and the outside air, like just out in the, in the, in the open, um, when the outside air pressure changes, uh, you know, air is always trying to equalize pressure, right? Like wind and, and all that outside. Well, same thing in a cave. When the air, side, air pressure outside changes, the air in a cave, that air tries to equalize pressure with the air outside. So it's either rushing out or sucking into the cave. And if, if there's this huge volume of air in the cave, but it all has to equalize through one place, you're going to get strong wind in that cave passage. And so that could be at the entrance. Um, which is actually why it's called wind cave and they can get wind over 60 miles an hour at that entrance. Um, or, you know, it can also be at a critical passage within the cave. So at a place where, um, the whole cave funnels down to one critical connection and then it open, and then it branches out again. So that was what we were hoping was kind of the case with, um, the, the revenge fantasy area because we found an area that had 
a lot of wind. I mean, if you see behind me, um, my background, it's this white, crazy looking arborescent tree looking stuff. Um, that's called frost work. And frost work is, it's a, normally it's, it's a mineral made of aragonite. And that is a good sign of airflow because it has to precipitate. Um, so, so there has, so, so evaporation can cause that, um, that mineral to, uh, come out of the solution basically. And, um, there is a place in the revenge fantasy where um, I think they called it, um, they might've called it final fantasy. Um, I wasn't on that, that trip. Um, but final fantasy, it's a, it's a passage, oh, like eight feet wide, maybe six feet tall. No, sorry. It's not six feet tall. It's like three feet tall. Um, and, um, but it, it's, it's a, tube passage lined 100% with like what's behind me. It's, it's just like bright white glistening and you have to, you have to carefully crawl through, you know, damaging as little as possible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, just last, was it just last weekend? Two weekends ago, two weekends ago, we set out to return to Hazel's area that she had been working on. Um, and uh, we were hoping to make a big breakthrough because on the trip prior, which I was not on, um, they had discovered a giant room and um, the cave had finally started getting good. Um, and they also found a huge pit um, that they needed to repel to get down and left many, many leads to go back to. So we're like, all right, we're, we're just psyched to go to this place. and team of six of us went out, um, you know, getting to this place. Um, if I can describe it, it's, um, I don't know the distance, um, in, in terms of, um, actual like feet traveled. Um, but it, it takes experienced cavers like three and a half hours, maybe four hours to reach this place. Um, and I would say 75% of that time is crawling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, imagine just crawling and crawling and crawling for two, three hours at a time, wow. you know, and you have all that time as you're, as you're crawling out there, you have all that time to think, what are we going to discover? You know, what are we going to find? It's a lot of anticipation. So we reach this area and we divide into two teams of three and our, our first several leads didn't, didn't really pan out. Um, things were getting small and really difficult to, um, to continue. And, and I, I tell you some of the things that kind of go through your mind when you're out there, first of all, if it's not clear, I know not everybody understands this right away. These are places that no human being has ever been. Um, so I want to make that clear that, you know, we, we know that no human being has been to these places ever. And, um, you know, you have expectations of what you're going to find. And so when passages start getting really small, even though a small passage can lead on to something really great, you're squaring, trying to push through this hole and you're going, 
I didn't travel all the way out here for this. This sucks, you know? <laughs> and now a little bit of that was what was happening is we're like, man, this area just sucks. And, and we just, you know, we, we kind of actually lost, um, lost a little bit of our, uh, our groove. You know, we, we decided to leave that area and go to some of the other leads that we knew started out better. Um, <clears throat> and um, so we went on to another area and uh, that ended up getting really small too. And, you know, that, that's kind of part of the thing about being an explorer, I think, um, just in general. Um, you know, I, I've probably mapped in my lifetime now just in various caves, um, mostly around the Black Hills, but all over the country. Um, I probably mapped like 50 miles of, of like virgin terrain, I would bet. And, uh, you know, you kind of learn something about what it means to be an explorer. And I'll tell you one thing, a couple things that you learn. One is that you can't really go in with expectations. I mean, you sure can, but it's going to really impact how you're exploring that place. And then the other thing is that uh, um, you really have to keep an open mind and you really have to, um, you have to just be willing to be thorough and not lose, you know, not lose hope. Um, because a lot of, you know, a lot of great things are beyond these, these really difficult squeezes sometimes. But in the, in the, in the moment you're sitting there, like, is this, there's not going to be anything beyond this. Why am I here? Right. It's just like life, right? It's just like pushing through yeah. life. You have these difficult moments and you, at times in life, you can't believe that it's going to be worth it to get to the other side. Well, sometimes if you have low expectations, it makes it even better. You're like, I'm not going to find anything. This is going to be horrible. And then when you do, wow, this is amazing. I yeah. would just, I mean, you've done this for so long. We're going to get into how you got started in it, but I would just be amazed. And I would love just going through all the tunnels, digging and I mean, it's, what I'd be afraid of, and I want to ask you if this ever happened to you, I would be so afraid of getting lost miles and miles underground. You know, um, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, it has happened in a, in a really big cave. Um, one of my friends did get lost. And, and um, uh, I actually almost got lost one time. Um, but you can imagine if there's going cave, uh, and it's a place no human beings ever been to, and you are, are suddenly lost, man, that's like, that's like being in outer space and dangling off. And, you know, it's like in the movies where you got like one hand holding on to the spaceship. You're like, ah, don't let go or I'll be like gone forever. Like you're barely clinging to reality. You know, <laughs> you let go of that and you're, you are in no man's land. No one knows what's there. Um, when, well, when you and your friend got lost at separate times, when you got lost on your own, were you by yourself or were you, were you with a group of people and the two or three of you got lost together? <clears throat> well, so when I got lost, um, it, it was, uh, in a place where we were in some small passages and we were hoping that this, uh, my friend Adam and I, we were hoping that this passage would lead 
to Moore Cave. And uh, so, so when you're mapping a cave and um, you, there's a little bit of a cave, caving ethic that you, you map as you go, um, mainly because it's mapping is work. Um, and so the thought process behind it all is that, that it isn't right for someone to enjoy the thrill of discovery, but not do the work of mapping and make someone else do the work of mapping. Right. So if you get to run around and see where all the great cave is and then go, cool, well, now I know where it all is, then there's not much motivation to say, cool, cool, let's map it. Right. Especially if it comes to an end. Um, so Adam and I were, were and that's called scooping when you run around. And, um, I'm of a little bit of a mindset that like some scooping is kind of necessary to try to figure out where the cave goes because. Sometimes you think it's going to go one place and then it ends and it just gets kind of complicated. So a little bit of scooping to kind of like scout the way is necessary. But sometimes the excitement gets the best of you. And uh, uh, my friend Adam and I were in this area and um, we uh, went through some crawlways and I actually didn't really think it was going to go anywhere. And then lo and behold, it was like, oh, this is starting to look really good. So I scrambled up onto this ledge and uh, I mean, it was a dramatic change. It went from a crawlway to like immediately I was at this great big pit, probably 40 feet deep, um, 20 feet across. Um, and, and I could stand up and I was like, wow. Um, we ate, later ended up naming this passage, the call of the void. Um, have you ever heard of the phrase, the call of the void? I have. Um, for those that don't know, um, yeah, it's, it's French originally, and it's like, um, it's the, it's the call of the void is when your mind kind of wanders like, like, um, and, and it has nothing to do with suicide, but it's more like along the lines of like, you're driving and you think you, it just crosses your mind. Like what would happen if I just turn into oncoming traffic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that's not like I want to do that, but, but just like, what would happen if I did? Or when you, it, it's the urge to jump off a cliff when you're near the edge. Um, not like, cause you want to kill yourself, but because you like wonder what it would feel like kind of that's, that's the call of the void. So we ended up naming this big passage, the call of the void, this big deep pit. Um, cause you couldn't climb down it and we, we didn't jump down it either. Don't worry. Glad to hear that. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't yeah. put your friend down it either. <laughs> yeah. yeah well so but what happened is i rushed into this room and um i was like wow and i i started yelling for my friend adam adam and and i was think, yelling it goes and i turn around and i went into a passage the passage i thought i came out of but oh. it turns out there was one right behind me that looked very similar there was two passages that led into that room and so I'm running. I'm just so excited. I'm running. I'm like, Adam, it goes, it goes. And I go through a couple obstacles and then I look around and I'm like, hey, I don't really recognize this, you know? And then I'm like, Adam? And I'm like looking around and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to it, it was terrifying, you know? And, and I backtracked, backtracked, found the, found the hole again, found the call of the void. 
And then, um, then after that, I was able to realize that, okay, there was, there was two holes and I went in the wrong one. <laughs> so that one ended up happy. <laughs> I'm glad that one ended up happy. What about yeah. your friend? Not Adam, but the, you said there was another friend of yours that got lost at one time. What happened with yeah, him? There was, there was another, and this was the same kind of thing. They were on the edge of, of the cave. Um, and they, this one was pretty real deal. Um, they were on the edge of the cave and they were, um, they were pushing to, uh, I, and I wasn't on this trip. Um, this was back in 2011 and they, they were pushing a difficult part of the cave that took like seven hours to travel to. And there's no camp in the cave or anything. So, um, this team was actually spending like 20 planning to spend like 20 some hours in the cave like seven hours of travel out few hours of survey seven hours back all in one go without sleeping and um <clears throat> you know you you have a very specific amount of supplies um it's it's actually caving is actually a very calculated activity in that you have no you essentially have no resources you have no nothing to improvise with other than what you bring in but you can bring very little. So everything that you decide you want to bring is, is pretty crucial. And um, so you really weigh out like, okay, um, I'm going to travel to this point in the cave. I'm going to stop. I'm going to eat one, you know, one piece of food um, and drink about a half a liter of water. Okay. Then we're going to travel here. I'm going to need probably three quarters of a liter of water because that section is kind of hard. You really plan it all out like that. Um, and, um, uh, so this team was, uh, uh, out at the end and, um, they really wanted to know, like th their time was up for survey and it was time to leave. And they're like, well, we really want to know, is it worth it to, um, to come back out here or is this going to come to an end? So they're like, what Kelly, why don't you just dash under that ledge there and just see if it goes. He's like, okay. And he goes under the ledge and he's gone for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. They're starting to go, okay, hope he's all right. 20 minutes. They're like, he should not be gone 20 minutes. This is, this is getting to be bad. They started to look for him a little bit. 30 minutes. They're like, okay, we have a lost person potentially injured. Um, they searched for him for four hours. They, they could not find him. They could hear him the whole time pounding rocks on the wall. And you can hear that. You can actually hear that from a very, very long ways away in the cave. Um, and um, they were getting to the point where they were, they were using up their resources to get themselves out of the cave safely. And, um, you know, they're, they're like, what do we do? And I've heard, you know, had this story described to me where they basically, it was, it was unspoken, but they, they all knew they had to leave and they all felt we're leaving our friend in the cave to die because <laughs> what's he going to do, you know? 
this is, you know, people, I know some of you have probably been in caves, but these aren't, these are very remote environments where there's no organic life other than microbes. You know, there's no surface material plants. There's no, there's, it's rock, (laughs) it's rock and air and water sometimes. And so, yeah, they're, they're like, well, wow. I mean, (laughs) if we, if we leave, like we, we spend seven hours getting out. We tell people, Hey, Kelly, our friend Kelly's lost. Um, and then spend seven hours. Once a team is assembled, spend seven hours going back in and then they're back at square one. And this, that team had already spent four hours looking for what's the next team going to (laughs) do. And so they're like, well, we, you know, we don't know what to do. So, so there are actually like rescue caches um, in this particular cave. And so they were able to, you know, get a rescue cache that has a little bit of food and a sleeping bag. And they were actually able to leave that there for him. And they left him a note saying, you know, good luck. We'll be back. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I know, I know why they did it, but the way you're saying, it just it sounds kind of funny. It's like, all right, he's on his own. I guess we don't have to buy him a Christmas card next year. <laughs> yeah. No, I, mean, I understand. Because I mean, instead yeah, of having just, one person, instead of having five people perish, it's it's, it's one. So I mean, it sounds cruel, but I completely understand that. It. But it's, it's good that they did leave him the sleeping bag, some food, yeah. and w- was he able to get to the sleeping bag and food? So what ended up happening is. What eventually happened is, um, as they left, they rounded the corner, and, and there he was sitting on the on the main trail, the main travel route. We use a, a, a the same travel route, like kind of like arteries, you know, to get kind of like highways in the cave to get different places. And so, um, you know, he um, <clears throat> he had found his way back to the trail via a different way, I think. Um, and once he found that. He was like, okay, I know they're still looking for me. I'm just going to wait here. And that was, the, that was the right thing to do, of course. The mix-up and what happened was just kind of like my mix-up. When they said, okay, go on in and see if, you, see if there's anything in there. Well, there was, there was two holes. And everybody on the team thought he went in the one hole. So they spent four hours looking in this one hole for him. And he actually went in the other one. <laughs> and he said he was like, why haven't they found me yet? I'm 30 feet away from where I started, you know, and he just got a little turned around and just decided I'm just going to sit here and wait, you know? Um, And the last thing I'll really say about this is that, I mean, this place in this cave, it's one of the most, you know, to help you understand how serious this is, it is one of the most remote places a human being can go on planet earth anywhere. Um, no, with no possibility for communication. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's rugged. I'm, I'm guessing you can't bring, I mean, I'm sure your phones don't work down there, but you don't have some kind of communication where I mean, a beeper or something like, all right, I'll let you know where I am and we could not text each other, but, get in communication with each other. You don't have anything like that at all. There's nothing like that that works. I mean, there can be like a thousand feet of rock between you and the surface. 
um, there have been people who have invented, you know, really cool things. Like um, there is a way you can send a text message through like a thousand feet of rock, but it's very, it's not just like at, at a whim, like there's a lot involved in it. Um, and you actually have to do like a, a radio location where um, you have a pretty good idea of where that person is in the cave when you're on the surface and you have to go, you know, as close to you can as you can to um, where you think that person is on the surface. And um, the people in the cave have a um, device that emits a, a radio wave, a very low frequency, and it can be detected on the surface. But it, you know, that's how you kind of match up a location on the surface. And once you have that location set up, there is a way that like, if you are in, the, if one person is in that spot in the cave and another person is in that spot on the surface, then you could send a, a, a text message with ultra low frequency wave messaging. But um, that is like the only way. What about drones? Can you use drones down there? Not even just to find somebody, but maybe a smaller area, you can put the drone in there and see what's on the other side. I, it hasn't been done. Um, I don't think a drone would survive the trip. Okay. Um, and that's another um, thing is caves are such harsh environments that like sensitive equipment just doesn't make it. Um, so, I mean, it has to be like ruggedized, uh, you know, so. Um, What's the longest you've spent in a cave? How many days? Um, so I've done, uh, I've done an eight day trip in Lechuguilla cave. Um, that? that's South Dakota. That that's actually in New Mexico. Oh. Um, yeah. Yeah. Lechuguilla cave is another really big cave. I think it's about 140, some 150 miles. I think now it's over, it's over 150. Um, I should know how long that one is, but I haven't, I haven't actually been to that cave very much. So, um, but, uh, yeah, eight days underground, you know, um, kind of, it gets to be a long time, even, you know, even for someone who likes it, that's a long time. <laughs> the only thing for me that would really get to me is that there's no porto potties down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you carry, out all your, you carry out all your waste. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of, kind of a lot of work. <laughs> The other thing I'd be worried about, and I'm not sure if you ever encountered this or have heard stories, is when you're going through a small tunnel, crawling through to see what's on the other side, and you hit something and there's an avalanche and you're stuck in there. That would what I'd be afraid of as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, like a collapse, cave collapse. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So, you know, um, that's always a possibility in a cave. Um I was just thinking about a, a pretty good story that I have about a very small cave um, called Goodhue Cave. Um, <clears throat> that was a, a newly discovered cave um, here in South Dakota a um, number of years ago. And it's a, surveyed a little over a mile in length. And, uh, but this cave, particular cave, it, uh, it's different from the other area caves. It's just kind of a stream cave. Um, and, uh, so the passages actually are not, it's not as complex as, as these other massive maze caves. 
um, like Wind Cave. Um, but uh, Good Hue Cave has a lot of like really narrow slots, narrow fissures. And um, in fact, like the entrance is basically like a 70 foot deep crack in a stream bed. <laughs> um, and it's like about 10 inches wide. So it's about, it's about as wide as a person's chest. Um, and um, you just kind of slide and shimmy down. Um, way out at the end, my friend Dan and I, um, takes about an hour to get to this place. My friend Dan and I went um, and we kind of broke into a new area. And there was a, another one of these deep cracks in that area of the cave. And um, Dan ended up going down it while I was up above. And um, where I went up, where I climbed up above, up high, the, the rock was actually very loose. So I knew I was knocking a lot of material down and Dan was kind of below me and it was all funneling into where he was. And I was just kind of like, okay, I can't really, I can't leave. I'm knocking too much stuff down. I got to wait till he comes back. And so I kind of just perched and tried to get really stable and really still. Um, and so I hear Dan and, and um, I hear all these, this, uh, here are a bunch of bunch of f bombs <laughs> just over here. Like, oh, oh no, oh no, oh no, ah, 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 you know, just over and over and over again. And I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> what happened? Which is really crazy. So he was not trying to go all the way down this crack because he didn't even know if he could fit. Well, the whole the whole crack was coated in silt um kind of like the bottom of a river you know like all that really like and it's uh very slippery very very fine silty and it has just had this like 16th inch coating on everything <laughs> and as he was kind of moving this way in the crack he said he started just sliding down like really really slow and he said it was the scariest thing in the world because no matter what he did, he's pushing out with his arms, like, come on, stop wedging himself, you know, and he's just, <laughs> just sliding, sliding, sliding really low. And he's looking down, like, I don't even know if I can fit down there. Like I might just get wedged. And he could not stop himself from sliding. He slid like 30 feet to the bottom of this crack. And he did fit through the whole thing. And I then he was like, yeah then he was like well if i couldn't even stop myself from sliding how am i going to climb up this thing <laughs> and so i i sat perched up above in this loose rock zone just listening to him just thrash and struggle for like an hour and i'm yelling Dan! and he couldn't hear me but i could hear him and i just i had no idea what was going on i'm like what is is he stuck what's going on <laughs> um so yeah, we <laughs> believe it or not. Well, so after that, we were like, "Let's get the hell out of here." Well, how did <laughs> so how'd you he, get him back up? He climbed up. Oh, he did. It finally. took him like an hour. <laughs> took him like an hour, and it took like every bit of energy that he had. But he climbed back up, and I mean, that was a close call. You know, we're we're just like, Let, "Let's get out of here." 
believe it or not, we did go back and we, <laughs> we, back we didn't to the learn the crime. Yeah. Uh, we brought a rope the next time. Um, Dan wouldn't go down. I decided, okay, I can go down. I could see exactly why he had so much trouble. Um, we mapped it. It all ended down there. Um, we used the rope to get ourselves up. It, it was miserable, but it wasn't scary that time having a rope. Um, and we ended up naming that passage, The Suck. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect name sucked. for that. Oh, yeah, it sucked. And it, it sucked him down into the crack, too. So Literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Who hires you to investigate or explore these caves? What inspires me? No, no. Who, uh, who hires you? Oh, who hires? Yes. Sorry, yeah, broke up for a second. Um, you know, we actually don't even do... Most of the time, we don't do this for pay at all. Um, okay. So all the small caves, um, you know, that's all just for fun. Um, a lot of times, like private landowners, if, if a landowner owns a cave, um, you know, we like doing it. Uh, we like mapping caves. So we'll often approach a landowner if we know they have a cave and say, you know, we'll make you a beautiful map if you'd like. And if you let us in the cave, we'll make you this map and show you where your cave goes and take cool pictures and show you what you got, you know. Usually they're pretty agreeable to that. Um, there's, um, you know, there's federally owned caves too. Um, uh, the federal government actually owns a majority of like the really cool caves. Um, and most of that exploration is done under like a, a volunteer program. Some very lucky people get paid, but most of us do it just for fun. And you mentioned how difficult it is to go into most of these caves and it should be experts going in there. Do you have to go through some kind of test to be able to say, yep, Chris is okay to uh, investigate or explore this cave? Yeah, um, you do. I'm normally um, pretty much like uh, all the different caves. Um, it's interesting. It, it's sort of like a, a secret society and I don't, it's not meant to mean that like we aren't open to other people knowing about the caves um, or getting access, but it's more like the knowledge and, and um, the methods have to be passed down. Um, and <clears throat> so if somebody's interested in caving, we'll often start them out on, you know, some kind of, smaller cave take them something a little bit harder if if we if they're a known athlete already like say they're a say they're a climber a rock climber and and we know they're like a super good rock climber you might start them out on something a little bit harder because climbers usually tend to be pretty good at caving also um but uh yeah i mean it's it's just kind of like passing the torch you know on and and we, we just kind of train people up on our own um, for whatever cave we're working on. Um, as far as the federal government caves go, I mean, they do have standards um, that have to be met, but mostly they have to trust the people who are going in the cave to um, 
train someone and recommend them for the harder trips. How did you get your start? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I actually started as a rock climber. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so I'm in South Dakota now. Um, you might, might notice a little bit of an accent. I'm from Chicago, Chicago suburbs. And, um, uh, I got interested in, in moving out West after I worked at a summer camp in Montana for a few summers and just kind of ended up here in the Black Hills and was getting into climbing. Um, and, uh, you know, I ended up losing a job, um, back in 2007 and, <clears throat> um, or 2008, I guess. And worked some odd jobs for a little bit. And by about 2009, I kind of decided, you know, I mean, if I'm going to go for it, I'm, this is better time than any. I don't have a job. I'm broke, but I really like climbing. Uh, you know, I got that. <laughs> got a little bit of angst, you know. Um, don't fully fit in in society. So what the hell? I'll just go for it. I knew about this place called Poverty Gulch. And uh, it's a place where climbers kind of would camp out. And it was, uh, it was March and I moved, I moved, I, I gave away most of my possessions, um, kept some stuff and just stored it at a friend's house. Um, you know, terminated my lease on my apartment and, um, moved into my tent. And, uh, that was the summer of 2012. Um, well, March, it wasn't exactly summer. Um, I definitely remember like just laying in my tent freezing quite a bit. Um, most of the climbers that show up kind of show up more like April, May, when it gets a little warmer. Um, but uh, yeah, it was like, this is my big summer for climbing. I'm going to climb my butt off. And, um, you know, there's this, there's this pioneer couple named Herb and Jan Kahn. And um, they're actually from East Coast, um, New York and Connecticut, I think. And uh, uh, they lived out in the DC area and they did some climbing. And um, <clears throat> this was in like the 40s. Uh, and they, they, um, they ended up here in the Black Hills and they ended up being pioneer rock climbers um, for, you know, 15 years or so. Um, 15 to 20 years and did first ascents of all these pinnacles that this area is great for caves, but it's also great for climbing. And there's all these little pinnacle needles, they call them the needles. And the, the cons actually climbed um, like 240 pinnacles for the first time in the area, mapped them all out, named them. And, um, you know, every, everybody knows how, how popular climbing has gotten recently right it's mainstream there's movies and people know more the general population knows more about climbing than they've ever known um well in 1959 climbing climbing got too popular for herb and jan <laughs> believe it or not um they were quite the couple and they um they there was a local um geologist they had befriended 
who was also a climber they'd done some climbing with and he was in school in wyoming and one day he said to them you know what you know what you do when uh when it gets cold you go climb in the caves and uh they knew of this cave nearby that they said um that that dwight deal was mapping and it was uh 3000 feet long and um currently that cave is 210 miles long <laughs> so pretty cool um so yeah the cons um they started exploring actively um in this cave and um you know i everyone who climbs here they know who herb and jan climbs they're they're legends um in the way that they lived their life in in um their legends in the way that they uh in the way they dedicated themselves to just what they love to do in, in such a pure style and fashion um many people model their lives around herb and jan con um, who live in this area and know about them and, I, I um, love watching documentaries and I can't remember the name of, but I did see a documentary that featured them prominently, but the two oh, cool. that come to mind is definitely uh free solo that Alex Honnold pretty much put yeah. climbing on the map for a lot of people that had no idea what climbing, but there was a lot more before there's another one called right. Dirtbag, which I can't remember his name, but he's one of the original climbers. And I think right. maybe that's where they were mentioned. And the last one just came out recently. He's a French climber and he used to do ice climbing. Oh yeah, the Alpinist. Yes, the Alpinist. That was the yeah. last documentary on climbing I saw. That guy is not even for Alex Honnold, who I think is crazy. He goes, "I'm controlled crazy." This guy is just nuts for him to say that. And unfortunately, without giving anything away, you know what happened. So it's uh, but well, you know yeah. what? Uh, you know what's funny with all the climbers? I'm not sure if you have this mentality, but a lot of them always say, "You know what? If I die, I die." I'm I'm dying doing what I love. I don't see a lot of fear of death with any of these explorers or cavers or climbers. Mm -hmm. Do you have that same mentality? Uh, you know, to be honest, I don't think about it very often. Um, I don't, when I'm in the cave, I don't often think, um, you know, yeah, I could, I could die. It's a little more, um, it's a little less dramatic than climbing where when you look at, um, like Alex Honnold and some of these other, um, and, and, uh, Marc-Andre Leclerc and all these other climbers, you, you know, and look at what they're doing. I mean, the danger is just obvious <laughs> and, yeah. and they're right on that. They're really walking that line in the cave. I mean, you're walking a line a little bit, but it, it, it's not quite as obvious of, of danger. It's not quite as precarious as, as what, some of these free soloists are, are doing. Um, although it, it, there have been accidents in the cave, there have been close calls, and I, it has crossed my mind that one day I may see a friend die in the cave. Um, and that is not enough to stop me from going. I mean, I, I'll tell you why. Um, exploration i mean it's the opportunity to go to a place that no human beings ever been you know it's pretty cool you get to further humanity and the knowledge of uh, of our planet the knowledge of that that's that place 
Um, and there's nothing more exciting. I have never done anything near to what you're doing, but I agree with you. I grew up when my grandfather was the head of a hiking and caving club. And oh. he used to take my brothers and I all over the place. In Connecticut, there's not really big caves, but they're, it's, it's fun nonetheless. And we used to go in all these different little caves. And I still love doing things like that. So I always had interest in that. And that's why, you know, what, what piqued my interest when I was in South Dakota is like, let me try the wind cave. And then I said, let me go one step further. Let me try the wild cave tour, which for me, yeah. I loved it going through the little tones, as I mentioned in the intro. It's just, I, I agree with you. I love the exploring part of it. I think it's exciting and you never know what you're going to see, especially with you, because you're going into areas where no human has ever been before. And it'll be the first time that you're, you could find something amazing or could be nothing, but either way, I would walk out of there satisfied. Yeah, that's actually kind of the cool thing is, you know, even when you find nothing, you do, you, well, so you never find, depending on how you look at it, you never find nothing or you always find nothing because it's space, right? <laughs> you're look, When you're cave, caving, you're looking for nothing. <laughs> the bigger the nothing, the more exciting. Um, but uh, um <clears throat> Yeah. Um, even when you find nothing, so to say, um, and this is where kind of some of the philosophy of exploration comes in. Your attitude means everything. Um, and so, so like pe other people aren't going to go to these places that we go. Um, they're very hard to get to. They'll never be developed into a tour. Um, you know, in some cases, if a cave passage comes to an end, that may be the only visit from a human being that that cave passage ever gets. <laughs> if there's nothing of particular interest to study, there's nothing left to explore there. It's like sometimes you've crammed through this little hole and there's a little room and you're like, well, I'm going to leave this room and it, it will probably possibly never see light again. Um, Has there ever been a time where either you or a group that you're with will maybe take little explosives to make the hole a bit, little bit bigger and find out what's on the other side, or you just leave it the way it is intact? No, that that actually can be done, um, and that's something you kind of learn. Um, you know that um, as an explorer, you of course don't want to like destroy anything right um or or like hurt the cave um but at the same time sacrifices must be made for exploration sometimes you know so sometimes there's like a a, a cave formation that is a little bit rare like it's you know definitely a formation that you find in every cave right um but it's not everywhere right and, in, and it's beautiful and special, but it's like sometimes ex through exploration, those things get rubbed off or get, get dirty or, um, but if it leads on to miles and miles and miles of cave, you know, I don't know. It's, it's actually a pretty hard question to ask yourself, you know, progress at what cost? Does it really matter that you find miles of cave? I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess I just don't know. What is the weirdest thing you've ever found in a cave? Oh, the weirdest? Um, weirdest or most interesting? <laughs> so, 
Um, th this is interesting. This isn't really a cave. Um, it's a mine. And I know sometimes people don't know the difference. Mines are man-made. Caves are natural. Um, there, was a, um, there was a place where a sinkhole had opened up in a neighborhood. And we, we went to um, map it for them because, we, because it was thought that some of the houses could be in danger. And we went in <clears throat> and uh, th there was, uh, so there was a place where, I'm not even 100% sure how this happened, but there was a, a, uh, a 1953 Ford sticking out of the ceiling of this mine <laughs> God. like just rock all around it um and it was like whoa that's that's pretty unique <laughs> and what, what we think kind of happened is uh, this was an old mine and we think that there had been like other sinkholes and um in the past and people like kind of use them as garbage pits you know maybe an old junk car they just trashed it in this hole and it you know over the years just kind of sunk into the into the mine <laughs> imagine waking up for work one day well i don't think I'm, i think i'm going to be a little bit late sorry about that my car's in a mine <laughs> yeah that's right that's funny yeah so what happened did the neighborhood where the sinkholes were did they realize that they were in the middle of a sinkhole and they called you and your team to investigate to find out what's going on we ended up stopping getting being involved with it um, because um, it turned into a very intense legal battle. Um, and uh, there is certainly potential for some of these people's houses to be in, in danger. Um, but yeah, it, it turned into kind of a legal nightmare and we just decided we'll let the, let the experts handle that one. I, I don't, I don't deal with the, the law very well or rules. <laughs> I'm just an explorer. <laughs> exactly. Nothing to see here. Keep moving. I'm with you. I just want to, I just want to explore and mind my own business. I don't want to get involved in any of the politics or anything. So I, I, I don't blame you. Unfortunately, politics seem to come up everywhere these days, especially, but um, I mean, there's politics around everything. And I mean, that's one reason that you like to go explore is because you know, when you're going to a place where no human beings ever been, you know, nothing exists there. <laughs> so not even politics. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, I love watching documentaries and I have a streaming channel called Curiosity Stream. And there was a oh. documentary I was watching called Underworld. It was all about different caves and they had these explorers. And it was so interesting. One of the things I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned in the caves that you've been in, there's really nothing that exists besides microbes, but there was this one cave in Slovenia and they, they believe that dragons lived in the mountains and it was reinforced by small dragons being flushed out during rainstorms. And then in actuality, it was a rare creature only found in the Slovenia caves and they were called OMS, O-L-M-S, and they can go without food for over 12 years. So Whoa. have you ever found anything weird, mysterious, unknown, living in the cave besides microbes um no not like no nothing like that and um 
I'm just thinking, I don't think at that, I don't think I've found anything like that. Um, but I will say, uh, I, I did a presentation once for a high school class. And, um, you know, the, the presentation was all, it was, a lot of it was about um, the nature of discovery of um, what it means to go into a place for the first time and um, how literally anything can be there. Um, and I remember distinctly this, this kid at the end of the presentation, uh, he raised his hand and he said, um, are there monsters in the cave? And, uh, you know, I, I looked at him and I said, we don't know. <laughs> that's all i can say um and and you know that's that felt good being able to say that um you know knowing that knowing that there are places that we haven't been and how can i stay with certainty that um i know that there's not monsters there <laughs> i mean <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yeah. Another thing uh, in the documentary I was watching, they had people doing cave diving. Have you ever done that? Where there's so much water in the cave that they put on their uh, mask, the oxygen tank, and just go in there and explore the caves underwater. Have you ever been, have any caves like that? Um, so we do have caves filled with water. Um, and um, I know some cave divers. I have never done cave diving. Um, I'm not a diver, um, which really you got to be a diver first. Um, maybe I have a mild interest in it, but um, from what I hear, it's it's just quite a bit more dangerous. Um, like cave divers do die. Um, and uh, I mean, if you're if you're pushing the limits, you know, I mean, um, sounds exciting, but uh, I'm having lots of fun exploring airfield caves, so I might as well just stick to where I can breathe for now. <laughs> yeah, well, perfect example is if they were cave diving and they were sliding down and he lost his oxygen tank or his air and there's nothing that he could do and instead of climbing up for an hour, being able to breathe, he's going to hold his breath for a certain amount of time before his lungs explode. So, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I would rather be in a place where I'm able to breathe. <laughs> Bring on the wind. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, I have a pretty good story, though, about that. Um, every, everybody, really, everybody really likes what they like, right? So there's caves that are better known for their wet passages than their dry passages, like caves in Mexico, cenotes, and all that. Well, um, there was two great big caves that they they thought connected down there in Mexico, um, but they couldn't make the connection. And um, cave divers were the main ones surveying the cave. And cave divers, when they like, um, <laughs> it's funny. Like when I'm exploring a dry cave, if I come to water, it's like, oh, well, I can't, oh, well. And then I turn around and go somewhere else, right? These cave divers, they're diving and they come to an air filled passage and they're like, oh, oh, well, and then they go back into the water. Like, I guess we better look somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it just shows you everybody just likes what they like. Right. And one person's dead end is another person's world to explore. Um, but uh, what's interesting is somebody finally got the idea about these two big caves in Mexico that um, 
that uh that they they could connect maybe in the dry part of the cave because people just weren't really like focusing on that and uh, my girlfriend actually went on an expedition out there and and um they made some progress towards the connection and on the very next trip after she left they connected these two caves um in the dry area um and uh, we always made we always teased her because um you know, one of our favorite caves in the area is, is um, Jewel Cave, which at the time was the second longest cave in the world. And um, uh, once they connected these two caves, um, it surpassed Jewel Cave and became the um, Sistema Sakaktun became the um, second longest cave in the world. And Jewel Cave got booted to the third. We always teased my girlfriend, Renee, we always teased her about that. It's just like, oh, it's all your fault. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> you want to know what's funny about Jewel Cave? Originally, I was going to do the Wild Cave tour there, but they have a test where you have to climb underneath it to oh, make yeah. sure you're not too big. Yeah, I was too big. <laughs> I got oh, stuck yeah, in the, that the thing. Con- <laughs> the concrete block, yeah. Yes, you have to climb underneath the concrete block. I got stuck in there. I said, yeah, we'll see how Wind Cave is. And that one went, well, you went, know, was yeah, better for you me. Know, you, you know, you actually don't even have to be very big to be too big to do that. I mean, it's um, it's only eight and a half inches high. Um, so if you take like a dollar bill, um, I think the height of a dollar bill is like seven and a half inches, like like the length of the length of a dollar bill. So yeah, it's pretty low. <laughs> Can't be too many people that were able to get through that. I can imagine. Yeah. Did you have any issues at first? Um, no, I'm really small. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's um caving is one of the few sports where the runt has the advantage. That's what people say. <laughs> so you started at early age, I'm I'm guessing, with your curiosity for exploring, hiking, spelunking. Is that true? Somewhat, you know. I actually didn't even really get into the outdoors until I was in high school. Um Oh, that's a big switch. Yeah. Did my first backpacking trip in, in Michigan, um, in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Um, when I was like a senior in high school, I think like 2000, probably right around 2000. Um, I would guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, living in the, the suburbs of Chicago, you know, you just don't, I don't know. I was going to say you don't have the same opportunity, but um, I guess I just didn't find the same opportunity. Plenty there's cavers that live in Chicago. So, I mean, I could have found that, but I didn't, you know, uh, well, I live in Connecticut, which is mostly woods, especially the areas I grew up in. So for me, it was different. I grew up all over the woods. And as I mentioned, my grandfather was the head of a hiking and caving club. So yeah, I, I was brought up interesting. And there's one, I'm not sure if you ever heard of him. Did you ever hear of the old leather man? He's more from this area. Back no. in the 1800s, what he would do is nobody even knows exactly who he is. There's so many legends, so many stories on him. He would do the same route going from New York through Connecticut back through New York. And he would live in all the caves along the area. And he became so popular that kids would actually, the teachers would let the kids out of school so they can give him food. And he was, it's, un, it's the exact opposite of probably what would happen now. Now they would probably, you know put them away for, you know, get away from me, a homeless person. They just, it would probably be a lot more, even though there were people that were mean to him, but yeah, he, they, nobody really knows who he is. And he wore 
I want to say 10 to 15 pounds of leather at all times. So there's a lot, and he spoke French. So they think one of the stories would be that his, he was from France. His girlfriend's husband gave him a job at a leather factory. He took it over to the place went under. He lost his mind and just took off into the woods. That's just one of the legend spot in this area. There's at least five or six caves where he grew up in and, or not grew up in lived in. And I was able to go to each one of them. And there was some, they found him in a cave in New York. He had a, he loved to chew tobacco and he had lip cancer and he finally, finally succumbed to it. And they found him in a cave. Now he's buried in New York somewhere and they exhumed his body probably in 2011, 2012. And they said it was so, there was really nothing left to it. So they couldn't find, do any DNA to find out who he really was. Wow. Yeah. If you look up the old leather man, that's all you know about him. That's but, pretty cool. Yeah, that is. I, it's really cool. I bet most. I bet most East ca- ca- East Coast cavers probably know are, are familiar with that that legend. Yeah, um, it's kind of a regional legend, I guess. That's cool. I'll have to look that up. You have anybody in your area besides? I know you mentioned a couple that uh, <laughs> that are legends in the uh, South Dakota area. Um, there was a guy, <clears throat> the um, original explorer of, um, of Wind Cave, named Alvin McDonald, um, and he explored. I, I, I'm a little f- more fuzzy on the history of Wind Cave, um, but late 1800s, um, 1880s maybe, um, and he he did some of the early exploration in that cave, um, which is pretty cool to think about, um, you know, given that. As you can hardly picture what life here would have been like at that time. Um, but people, you know, people would take uh like a stagecoach or something and you know go up to go up to Wind Cave and it would take a probably a whole day to get there from hot springs or whatever. And then they'd, you know, I don't know, just trying to imagine what it would be like. Um, and then and then trying to go on a cave tour if you're, if you're a woman say you know wearing these big poofy dresses and just so different you know so different hard to imagine yeah no definitely i can't imagine what i found interesting too is now documentary underworld i was watching is they were explaining how caves were created it's just water dripping thousands and thousands and thousands of years and just the way that it creates all these different holes and structures um i know you know a lot about geology can yeah you, i'm learning studying yeah. geology right now mm-hmm. can you explain a little bit further for my viewers how caves are created yeah well caves form in a lot of different ways um so the but the caves in um the black hills are what i'm more familiar with um <clears throat> so the black hills um are, are a result of what's called the black hills uplift and um so there's like a little, you can imagine, uh, do this right here. My background's kind of messing things up. It's making my head float. <laughs> so I'll just explain it this way. The Black Hills are kind of like a, like a pimple on the earth, right? Like you have this little like magma rising and sort of like bub- creating this bubble on the earth. And um, uh, what, what that was being pushed into is, sedimentary rock sedimentary rock is rock that has uh it's it's formed from 
sediments, obviously. Sediments can be like shells of animals um, or, you know, sand. Um, you can imagine the different kinds of rock that are created by that. Sandstone, sand. <laughs> uh, limestone, right? Calcium carbonate, got all these shells and organic material. Um, so, so you have that layer, right? And then um, in the Black Hills uplift, magma is pushing up really slow and starts pushing through that layer. And it makes it so that the, the out, outer edges of it, it, it pushed through in the middle, um, but on the outer edges, it left it kind of tilted, right? At like a small incline. Um, and um, then uh, um, it, it also like fractured all that limestone. Um, so it's, it's just like cracked and it's got weaknesses in it. And, and then um, acidic water is the driving force behind cave formation. So acidic water um, mixing from the surface, mixing with rising groundwater dissolves out all those cracks. Limestone, it actually does dissolve in acid. Um, and so that's why they call it, like truly it's solutional cave. Um, and yeah, so that's the main way that like the caves here in the Black Hills formed. Um, pretty amazing. You mentioned that, uh, what's the largest cave that you explored? Pro, pro, uh, it would be Jewel Cave. Um, I haven't been to the, the um, well, except as a kid. I, I've been to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, which is the lo longest cave in the world, as a, as a child, just on a tour. Um, don't really remember it. Um, and then um, I've never been to any of the caves in Mexico or anything. Um, so haven't been to the world's second longest. So Jewel Cave. Not yet. I have a feeling you'll be there sometime. Yeah, I think some someday. What about the smallest? Oh, <laughs> um, you know what is really funny? Um, it's not, it's not like the shortest, but, but there is a cave called Pop Cave. Um, and, uh, it's it's near this other cave um that used to be a a, a tour a, a tour cave and um pop cave was actually one of the early caves that i uh that i went into and it was one of my first like major discoveries so um they called it pop cave because um it's it's pop as in soda so there's this there's this bigger cave on the property that people did tours in and off to the side, there's this other very, very small, like belly crawl cave. And they used to put the soda in there to keep it cold. <laughs> um, so I was like, oh, that's the pop cave. Um, so this, you know, we have this caving club called the Paha Sapa Grotto and this guy named Mike Hansen, Mike Hansen, he knew about every single little hole and legend. And he knew about everything in the Black Hills there was to know about all these little tiny obscure caves that no one really knew about or cared about except him. Um, and he always is telling me, you ought to go to Pop Cave, you know, I'm like, okay, I guess. Um, and it hadn't been thoroughly explored, even though Pop Cave is like 300 feet long or something. Um, but it was just like 
super duper, duper, duper tight belly crawls. Like, like, just like the whole time you're just like inching forward, like, you know, nine inch high passage for like 300 feet. <laughs> I couldn't um, get through Jewel it's, Cave. I'll never make it for that. Yeah. So like, you know, like the Jewel Cave, the block at Jewel Cave that you try to get through. It's, yeah. it's like going through a passage like that tall, but like 10 feet wide that tall for like 400 feet. <laughs> wow. even even caves that are like small um you can usually like stand up in places or at least like sit up in places and get like a break this cave you you couldn't get a break it was just belly crawl 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 and uh anyway we went to check it out one time and um uh there was a few leads drawn on the map and we went to one of them and I crawled through and um uh rounded the corner and all of a sudden it splits in two ways and I could actually crawl on my hands and knees and it was like wow for pop cave this is really good and I I I uh looked at Renee and my girlfriend and I said okay you go right I'll go left and I go left like 15 feet and lo and behold hole in the floor goes down like 15 feet into walking cave passage. And I was just so excited. That was my first discovery I ever made in a cave. It was like, oh my God, I found something. I found and we we got out of the cave and we called Mike Hansen. We're like, he's like, well, how was the trip? And we're like, we found walking cave. He's like, uh-huh. I'm like, no, we really did. Uh, so he didn't he's even like, believe it. That's funny. No, he didn't even believe it. Because <laughs> it was just such a it was just not thought to be anything, you know. Um, did you oh, name yeah, that small, after yourself? Is this, is this the Chris Kozarski um, walking cave? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember if we, you know, what's really funny all these years later, we still haven't gone back and mapped that. So it doesn't really have a name, um, at this point, but I do remember there was a really good name that we came up with. There was this place where there was this, um, uh, rubble cave rubble like uh, it's called breakdown rocks, kind of a, a pile of rocks kind of coming out of the wall. And uh, I came up with the name for that of um, rubble without a cause. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. You, did you ever think of writing a book about your experiences? Um, yeah, I've actually started, um, started working on a book um, about some of these experiences. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, um, at the moment it's tentatively called living in the light of discovery. And the book is really about, I would say the philosophy of, of, uh, being a pioneer. I would say that's actually ended up being one of the biggest themes is like, what does it mean to be a pioneer? And, um, what I really hope that people, when it's finished, um, what I hope that people will get out of it is, um, inspiration to be a pioneer themselves in, in whatever they do, you know, cause you, you caving is, is like obvious pioneering cause you're going into a physical space. Nobody's ever been, but there's so many things you can be a pioneer in and, and you know, why not? Why not go for it? Exactly. I love that. I'm inspired already. <laughs> yeah, cool. uh, so you mentioned that you studied geology. Did you go to school for that? Uh, yeah, right now I'm going to do that to the, to the uh, South Dakota, South Dakota School of Mines. Um, 
and I'm just really in my first year of geology classes. So, you know, getting a better grip on, uh, on some, some of the basic concepts is where I'm kind of at. Um, that's something that you maybe in the future you want to teach or you're using this right now to become more acclimated with what you're actually doing. And can you make a lot of money exploring? I don't, I don't think you can really make a lot of money exploring. And, um, I mean, no, I think most cavers pretty much, um, either they, they live the ultimate simple life or, um, or they, uh, have other job, another job that, uh, they do during the week. Um, you know, I kind of did that. I did the simple, super simple life for a little while. Um, kind of like I was mentioning how I got into caving through Herb and Jan Khan. Um, yeah. you know, they lived in this, uh, off the grid house, um, that, uh, called the Khan cave. Um, it's not a real cave. Um, it's like a, shelter cave you know like you can't crawl into it it's just a kind of a shelter in the like a uh overhang in the wall but they built a house around it in 1940 but no no running water or no electricity and jan is 97 about to turn 98 and she actually herb passed away in 2012 but jan lived in the concave until um just last year and she she's 90 she she moved out at 96 or 90, 97. Um, no running water, no electricity. Amazing. All the documentaries, some of the ones I mentioned, like The Alpinist and uh, Dirtbag. Dirtbag's funny because he was su such a minimalist. One of his friends found this really old, disgusting paper cup from McDonald's. So he threw it out. He goes, Where's my cup? Where's my cup? I used that to get free coffee every day at McDonald's. If they have a re it's a free refill. And even in the Alpinist, he and his girlfriend lived in a tent for the longest time. But yeah, they just love what they do. They you don't really it proves that you really don't need a lot of money to do what you want to do, it's just how you want to live. And yeah. they have that mentality. And I I respect that and I appreciate it. It's like, you know what? You're doing what you love, you're having a great time, and I'm all for it. That's that's great. Yeah, I used to when I when I lived in my tent back in the back in about ten years ago. When I when I lived in my tent, I used to um, hitchhike into Rapid City, and I would go to um, Little Caesars because you know they have the hot and ready pizzas. And yeah. at the end of the night, they throw them all away. And um, like they they would actually they were actually very nice about um, what they did. They they wouldn't like just toss them in. Like they knew that people needed them, and they would just take them and just set them on top of the kind of in there real gently and. So yeah, we'd wait till Little Caesars closed and go grab these pizzas. And then my friend had an apartment there in Rapid. And so um, we'd take them over to his house and we'd reheat them in the oven. We, we, we go, you know, I'd give him a call and I'd say, hey, you want to go get a dumpster pizza? <laughs> like, sure. Like, all right, I'll, I'll hitchhike over to Rapid and meet you at Little Caesars. <laughs> like the Friday night, Friday night special. <laughs> That's right. I love it. You mentioned earlier that you were doing some lectures at schools. Do you still do that? Um, no, I not not right now. Um, you know, I used to I used to talk to um high schools and um you know, young students. Um that kind of fell by the wayside. I mean, it, it got a little, you know, I, I actually used to run a um a program um that I was 
trying to develop um, into more of a, a business or at least something that I could sustain myself. Um, speaking to students about possibility, um, you know, um, and, and about some of the, the philosophy of what you learn as an explorer. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think really the main message that I wanted to share, which um, I got into this a little bit earlier in the, in the call today, um, remember how we said limestone or uh, caving, you know, when you're, when you make, when you're discovering cave passage, you're really discovering nothing because you're discovering the absence of limestone, right? Um, here's what's really cool about that. In actuality, you're discovering nothing, right? You're discovering this void. However, like it's fascinating and everyone wants to know, what did you find? You come out of this cave and no one knows what you found. All they know is what you tell them. And that is a perfect example of how um, you, you create your own reality. You, uh, you literally create it. I, the places that I've been, the only way in which those places are known to humanity are in the way that I have chosen to describe them. And they're nothing. It's it's space. <laughs> so talk about you know creating whatever I want out of nothing. Uh, I mean, it's pretty cool. And in in caving, that's in cave exploration, that's very obvious. It's a very obvious way to see this happening. But it happens in everything we do. It's all about the way we talk about it to other people, and it creates it that way for you. How long did you do the lectures for? Uh, you know, it was like kind of the height of it. it was when my when my last interview with you. Um, uh, that was kind of the height of it, and may, maybe like a year um, or so. Um, and I was working a lot with like local high schools and um, going in and talking to to kids about about these kinds of things. And you know, a lot of kids were like, "Whoa." Like I've never, I've never been exposed to this. This is crazy. You know, great thing. I, mean, I would love for somebody when I was younger, I would love for somebody to come to the school and talk about that. And I think it's even better now after the pandemic zoom yes. burst into reality and you can reach people all over the world just by hitting record. I think I would definitely uh, sign up for one of your lectures. If you did one online like this. Thanks for Yeah. You know what? I mean, I'm, I might have to look into that, especially because like a lot of schools are are wanting to go more Zoom over Zoom. Yeah. And that that alleviates a big problem of, of travel um, and the expense of travel and plus the impact of traveling. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's actually a pretty cool idea. And I, I think you're totally right. Kids really need to learn about possibility um, because. If you don't learn about possibility, by the time you get to be an adult like us, you know, you you are <laughs> you're going down the path of no possibility, yep. and then it's just random. <laughs> it's just random. I think kids also need to know that there's more to life than just waking up, eating, going to work, coming home, watching TV, going to bed. To start the whole system all over again. I think that kids need to know there's a whole life out there. And if they heard your stories, like me, I'd be fascinated by it. I'm like, you know what? 
if it's not caving, I want to do something that I'm passionate about. I want to try something. I want to be a pioneer. I want to explore. So yeah, I think that would be a good thing for you to get out to the kids or even adults that would just love to hear these stories. And it probably and most likely would inspire them. Yeah. You you know what, um, Jan Kahn, the pioneer woman, I mean, she's been a, a friend and, uh, you know, she always challenges me with her, uh, her philosophy and, um, two stories I have to tell about, about her. Um, two of the most memorable things she's ever said to me. One, she said, uh, one time she told me, um, that, uh, if you fully commit yourself to whatever it is you find meaning in, it's impossible to have any regrets. It's cool. And you know, I, what I, to, to extract that a little bit, I love the phrase find meaning because it illustrates that really meaning is, is just where you find it. It's so individual, you know, but if you stop, if you're, if you're like just not happy and, and, and don't know what to do with your life or want to make a change, and, and you just stop and just ask yourself that question, where do I find meaning? And then fully commit yourself to that. Yeah, you're living, you're living the high life all of a sudden. And Herb and Jan, they were masters of that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like I said, I mean, I mean, I told you that, that rock climbing got too popular for them in 1959. I mean, I mean, that is outrageous. You know, <laughs> that's like, what? Oh my God, that was the, those were like the, that's the golden era of climbing when, you know, a lot of cool stuff was happening and it was just wide open and people were learning how to climb harder things. And there was plenty of opportunity for exploration and they were, they just stopped finding meaning there. And they didn't, they didn't question that. They didn't say, you know, why did we stop? You know, it seems like they didn't experience stress over it. They're just like, well, that just doesn't mean as much to us anymore. So we started doing something else. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure I heard her expletive from where she lives when Free Solo won Best Picture for the uh, documentary. No! (laughs) (laughs) It can't be! It never used to be such a tourist thing. It it was ours at one time. (laughs) You know what's so crazy is you would think, I mean, that's how people would respond. And I, I, I will tell you that the, the, the wildest thing. She only did what she did because she found meaning in it. She didn't do what she did to gain anything or, you know, to, because someone else did something, you know, it, it was literally just because they found meaning in what they did. And, um, so, so <clears throat> here's something that just happened to me yesterday. I gave Jan a call. I'm, I'm the uh, chair of a, a, a big caving convention that is coming to um, Rapid City in June. And we're expecting like a thousand cavers from around the country um, to come to Rapid City for about a week. And um, there's presentations on exploration in U.S. caves, international caves. We've got, um, you know, different uh, welcoming events, um, sessions and seminars and talks on science, all kinds of really cool stuff going on. And um, 
You see, Jan Jan Khan was a musician. She wrote the, all these wonderful songs about Jewel Cave. And she has this, this uh, album that actually she produced that's kind of, well, it's relatively unknown, but it's a true gem. And um, it's just called like Caving and Climbing Songs, you know, by Jan Khan. And um, it's, it's super folky, you know, it's like authentic, like authentically Jan, authentically folk music. Got a lot of character. And I, I thought, you know, she's gotten old enough now that even some of our youngest caving club members, like they're like, who's Jan Khan? What, what, what's this, you know, what's this music? I don't know anything about this music. And I thought, how cool would it be if everyone who registered for our convention had the chance to um, purchase this CD? So I gave her a call and I asked her, you know, hey, what do you think if, if I were to reproduce this CD and get, get your music out there and because I, I said, Jan, your music is, is like the foundation of, uh, it's the foundation of the culture here. Um, and what you guys did, you know, we build off of that. And I want everyone to know about that. You know what she said? She said, oh, well, she said, I, I know you got to stand on our shoulders, but I don't think you, you she said, you don't want to get stuck there. And I'm like, well, okay, sure. Um, you know, and I'm chatting with her more. And she's like, I wouldn't worry about what we did. It's, that was a long time ago. It doesn't really matter what we did. And she said, I, I just think you should just look at everything with fresh eyes. I, <laughs> love, like, I, I like that mentality, but I also like to know something that I'm interested in. I will study and learn everything about that. So I would love to know, you know, the, the past and the, the pioneers from the past. So for me, I'm with you where I like, I would love to have a copy of that if I was one of the cave explorers at that convention. But I know what she's saying too. It's like, don't look in the past, keep your eyes forward and look in the future. So I, I see both sides, but I'm more with you. I think that they should do that. I think they should appreciate where they came from and why they're here right now. I do too. Um, but you know, it's, I've been thinking about it for like a day straight because it's, it, was, it was such a big, it was a shock. It was like, oh, wow. Like, well, why wouldn't you want your music shared with all these people? Like you made it. It's, it's beautiful. It's great. It's a foundational like thing, you know? And you know what I finally got out of it is just like what we were talking about meaning and we were talking about, um, you know, fully committing yourself to wherever you find meaning. Meaning is such a personal thing. And some people are more aware of this than others, but I, I believe that nothing has inherent meaning. And an individual creates the meaning that it has um, through the experiences they've had. Um, because one person can experience something and say, that was traumatic. Somebody else can experience the same thing and not, and it is not dramatic to them. You know, it's not literally, it's not saying that people don't go through trauma. So I don't want to like take away someone's trauma, right? Like people go through things and that's real. And that is definitely not taking that away as an experience, but, but where I'm going with it is that, that, um, 
Jan, I think, uh, realizes that, that meaning is whatever you create. And ultimately, whatever meaning you create, it's insignificant. <laughs> no matter what you choose to create, it's insignificant. <laughs> right? Just go big. Just keep going bigger if you don't get it. And eventually you'll realize it's insignificant. And I think that's ultimately like what she was trying to say. It's like, well, you know, we did what we did. We found meaning in what we did. Now you're doing what you do and you're going to find meaning in that. And, and uh, you don't really need us for anything anymore. And it's all insignificant anyway. That's, that's impressive because most people, especially in this day and age, most people love the limelight. They love being the center of attention. So for somebody who's such a pioneer like that to say, you know what, that was nothing. It means nothing. Just move on. That is kind of impressive all on its own. It's amazing. She yeah. invented, you know, you know, she's not credited with this, but Herb and Jamcon invented the rock climbing shoe. Oh, really? That's, <laughs> they're not even, they're not credited with that at all. I mean, it's unofficial, but like everyone was wearing mountaineering boots back then. And, um, they noticed that like a tight fitting sneaker they thought might do a little bit better. And they, so they wore Keds. They got like, they bought Keds that were like a size too small and just like crammed their foot into them. And because that like soft rubber on the bottom, you know, it can kind of deform to the, um, to the, uh, rock, they were able to climb more technical things. Um, but so, so, I mean, that was to me, that, that was the first climbing shoe. And, um, you know, you sit here and you think, what's the first thing everyone would be saying if someone said, Oh, we, we started doing this, like, Hey, that's a million dollar idea. <laughs> I exactly. She, she's not living a millionaire's life. I can tell you that, you know, <laughs> and it's just incredible um, that like that 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 she was able to create so much meaning and maintain that it was insignificant. What's also amazing is that not only one but two. Because I'm guessing her husband had the same mentality. Yeah, he did, and I actually never I actually never met him in in person um never talked to him but other friends of mine did and he was he was pretty reclusive um he was actually like um uh a world-class uh mathematician and uh he he like corresponded about math by letter with people around the world and um he's actually listed um he's actually listed on wikipedia as uh, um, being in the top 100 amateur mathematicians in the world <laughs> to have lived. And it says next to it, it says like profession and it says rock climber. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was one of the, you know, and that's just like really cool, you know, and here he is just living this humble life, like living like literally like in this shack in the woods and, you know, and they invented and, and they did all this great grand climbing and caving. And they're just like, well, whatever. <laughs> it's impressive that she's, you said she's 97 years old and she's still active. I mean, not maybe not climbing, but what I'm saying is she's still, 
you get the chance to call her on the phone and she still talks to you. She's still interested in what other people are doing. I love the fact that she's still involved in that part anyway, at that yeah. age. Yeah. yeah, it is really cool. We actually um, make a point out of when we go on the really exciting trips in um, Jewel Cave where they explored. Um, we, um, when we go on those trips, when we get out of the cave, we'll, we'll call her um, and we'll, uh, and, and sometimes it'll be two in the morning. I mean, we give her warning and tell her, Hey, we're going to get out at two in the morning. Can we call you? And if it, if we think it's going to be a particularly exciting one, she's like, Oh yeah, I want you to call me right away. And, um, you Love know, it. it, the phone Love rings like one time and she doesn't say hello. She just, it just one time she goes, good. What'd you find? What'd you find? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> so sweet. Does Such she a, still live in that little shack by herself? This is the craziest thing. Um, her, her home, the concave actually burned down last year in oh. March, um, in a wood stove fire. And I mean, this, it's, it's just crazy because this is the, it was, it's the closest thing to like a, a genuine Hobbit home I've ever seen. I mean, this is like legit, you know, totally like, I've never seen anybody live in a place like that. Like for real, it looked like a movie set. And, um, so sad that it burned down. You know, she actually had, she kept a daily journal. Um, uh, since she was 18. So that's like 80 years or 79 years of daily journals. And all of those journals burned. And I know, and you know, what's so crazy is I talked to her like a couple days after the fire and she's like, well, She's like, I guess I have no choice but to move on. <laughs> she's, wow. just so, wow. she's just so resilient, you know. <laughs> Sounds that way. Well, again, it just goes back to like the insignificance. I mean, she's just like, oh, well, oh, that was fun while it lasted. You know, I mean, she's just got this like lighthearted, like, like, well, that was cool. It's over now. It also goes back to, as you mentioned earlier in the interview about the pioneers early on, what life was like back then. I mean, she's 97 years old. She's seen a lot and been through everything. So when she first started growing up, life was completely, life is so much easier now than it was back then. So she probably it's to her, like, okay, whatever. You know, it's just, everything is a grain of salt, which I mean, it's still very, very impressive. But so now since that place burned down, where is she living now? Did she, uh, she's living. So she has some neighbors that, um, they, they're close friends of hers, um, lived here forever. Um, and they, they're climbers and, um, she moved in with them actually. I mean, they're kind of taking care of her. Um, but uh, it's, it's like, what a lady. I mean, I, when I talked to her the other day, I'm like, well, what have you, what have you been up to Jen? And she's said, well, mostly just sitting around thinking. It's like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I would I got I got to find out what documentary I saw them featured in. They they weren't the main characters in that documentary, but I do oh. remember those names. I do remember that name, especially since like you said one is from Connecticut and I maybe that was why 
I, I don't remember which what I was watching, but I want to I want to go on YouTube and see if there's anything on there. There has to be at least something that they sound so interesting, and I would love to learn more about them. I think it's called Up Not Down. Does that sound familiar? It does sound familiar. Yeah, I've yeah. watched so many things. A lot of times I'll just go on YouTube and watch different things, and then that will lead me. If you like this, watch this, and then I'll start watching that. So I, that does sound familiar. That might be the yeah. One. Look up, look up, up not down. My friend actually produced that movie, and I'm in it. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, yeah. I gotta check uh, it out um, again then. So I look a lot younger. It's about it's about uh, 10, 12 years ago now. Um, I watch it, and I'm like, oh man. Oh, I like look young. <laughs> <laughs> there was one place I want to go to. I think it is. Uh, I mentioned about tourist areas, and I think this has become such a big tourist area that somebody went there and they said the line was so long they left. But it's the catacombs in Paris. Have you ever been there? Oh no, I haven't. No, it I would sounds love cool. to check that. Yeah, it sounds really cool. But um, a friend of mine went there and he said he wanted to go there, but the line was two or three hours long. He said, "Forget it's, it's come almost like Mount Everest." In a way, people are not dying because of the extreme temperatures. They're dying because they're stuck in the mountain because there's a hundred other people in line waiting to get up to the top. It's become like that. Yeah, gosh. I know. it's um, Tourism is such an interesting... Tourism is really the other end of the exploration, or other end of the spectrum of, of, of exploration, really. Yeah. <laughs> You know, talk about the opposite of going into the unknown place where no human beings ever been. Then you got tourism where, you know, people are capitalizing off of uh, people, yeah. as many people as possible going somewhere. So Realize interesting. Like, hey, Not people are interested in this. We'll see if I can make a dollar off of it. That's what everybody's thinking. It's like, how can I make money off of this? <laughs> I know. And it's interesting. It's, it, uh, Talking to Jan, Jan will make you wonder about a lot of things. <laughs> you know, she's got a, I mean, she, she was a pioneer, you know, for at, uh, <clears throat> you know, when she was young, she was a pioneer when she was 18, you know. Um, and so being, that's just such a unique perspective to, to have around still. Um, yeah, look up that movie, Up Not Down. Um, recommend for you and all the the listeners. Um, I think you can get it on Vimeo. Um, yeah, my friend Josh Bolt um, made that movie. Um, he actually won the um, first place in the Black Hills Film Festival with it. Um, and uh, it's a fantastic movie about the history of the area and and climbing. And um, doesn't really talk about caves, but you know that's all. That's okay. <laughs> But there's a documentary that I can't remember his name, but it reminds me of Jan, where he is he's well, he's dead now, but he was so old and he just said, I want to go to Alaska. It was this remote area and nobody was around. He he built a cabin from scratch. He killed all his food. He had nobody there. He lived there for over 20 years. He had one guy come in, I think maybe every six to seven months. And just drop off food in a plane. That would be it. It's called Alone in the Wilderness. And there's part one and part two. But it's people like that amaze me. It's called Alone in the Wilderness. I can't remember his name. Yeah. yeah. Hold on a second. Let's say, is it, uh, is it this? Let's see if I can see it here. I Dang can't it. see it, but that's really, mostly the one. What's his name? Wait. That's, 
That's it. Get it to AMC. But it's um, that's Bob, the one. Uh, Bob Swearer Productions. Yep. Um, this looks like it's got to be it. You know, it a friend that I just met up with last night loaned this to me. He just loaned this to me. That's so, funny. You're, like, you're gonna like it. Sitting on the bookshelf. <laughs> yeah. I. It's funny because I I saw that years ago. I bought it, and then I didn't realize there was a part two, which is part one is basically explains everything. Part two is more of uh, the deleted scenes, but they're both great. It has such an amazing story. And now it's they made it into an historical landmark so people can go there and check it out. Cool. Yeah. yeah. It's, no, I, um, I love people like that. It's so funny, though. Um, you know, we all talked about, we've all talked about for many years, <clears throat> the concave um, is such a special place. And we've all talked about like, well, what'll, what will happen to the concave when, when Jan's not around? Cause she would hate for it to be some kind of historic landmark or, you know, um, because actually um, she didn't really let people come into the, the home. Um, it, a few people got to go, um, but it was like, you were very special if you ever got invited into the, into the concave and um, uh small handful of people ever got to go in but um so she, she was very private and i think was a little bit kind of like i don't know not like ashamed of the way she lived but just didn't like promoting it i guess um and uh it's it's we just think it's so fitting that the concave burnt burnt down because that's pretty much what she would have wanted um or what she will have wanted when she's not around, you know, she wouldn't want people tromping through her house going, wow, who lives here? This is amazing. <laughs> you know? Well, now that you say that, it makes it more normal why she would say, eh, it's time to move on. Maybe she realized that, you know, after, after I die, this is going to become that, I really don't want this people traipsing through my house saying, oh, my God, look at this. This is great. So now that what you're telling me now makes a lot more sense to me of why she would just be so like, OK, whatever. So apathetic about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, it, it certainly formed a lot of the basis of my um, how I think about exploration, how I think about life and yeah. how I think about how, how I explore the cave. Um, and what it means to explore the cave and um, how I, you know, how I tell the story uh, of exploration. And it's all, you know, it's all formed by my experiences, I guess. Definitely. Now, in some of the documentaries I watched, they send people in to rescue maybe somebody that got caught in a cave or somebody that was lost. Have you ever been hired to do that? Or have you ever been a volunteer to rescue somebody? Uh, no, I, ha I haven't. Um, but um, uh, my girlfriend actually teaches cave rescue classes. Oh. Um, and she's been on a couple smaller rescues. Um, we, we certainly have friends that have been on um, cave rescues where people have died, which is really um, really wild. Um, and that's sort of a, a whole other thing, you know, um, I don't know, we talked earlier about whether or not, you, you know, you were asking 
when uh, when I go exploring these extreme places, do I think about you know uh, the risk of death? You know, and uh, I, I guess uh, it, it certainly can manifest sometimes. And um, I know that the people who have had um, who, who have been on the rescue end of something where somebody did not make it, it, it really did mess them up where they were like, not quite so uh, keen to take risks. Yeah. You know, yeah. but unfortunately I think what happens is the more afraid you are, the more worried you're going to be about messing up or slipping. That's when it happens because you're too careful. I know it sounds odd, but I think a lot of times that happens where you're too careful and that's where you're going to mess up because you're, being overly cautious. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, because some of your, because some of your um, energy is being spent worrying and instead of focusing on the task at hand, I actually have a friend. Um, this is a whole other philosophy. I have a good friend that said, um, <clears throat> he says, uh, making things idiot proof just makes idiots. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and and it does, but, you know, <laughs> thinking can actually get you out of a lot of situations, right? Um, but you notice when you're scared, you don't think, you know, because your energy is diverted towards thinking about what could happen instead of what you can do. Um, and so I think the people that do some of these extreme, you know, make it through these extreme situations, I think they're just like totally and utterly focused on like the world of what's possible again, back to possibility, what, what's possible. Um, not, not what, if this happens, right. Um, and I, I've actually given safety talks, um, before, um, and I, I have, I've worked on a hot air balloon crew, uh, believe it or not. Um, and we, we do the safety seminar every year. And one year I, told the owners of the balloon company they asked me to do it they asked me to do a talk on um safety from the perspective of like a climber and a caver and i told them okay i will and you know the name of my talk is going to be safety is an illusion <laughs> and they're like awesome go for it <laughs> so so i did i gave this great talk called safety is an illusion and what it basically kind of uncovered is that what you were saying, actually, the number one time that, that accidents happen are when people think that they're safe. When people expect to be safe, they stop thinking. And then they, they don't recognize when something's going wrong or when something, they don't even know how to recognize that something's going wrong because they don't know how it works, right? That's what, that's what, um, uh, making things idiot proof just makes idiots that's what that means you know is that it's a failure of understanding the basic way that things work um and so you look at someone like alex honnold who does all these solos and stuff i mean he just knows how how it works really yeah. really well and he focuses on that you know that's what was funny in that documentary of the alpinist he was saying he goes you know, people think I'm nuts. People think I'm on my mind. He goes, I actually know exactly what I'm doing. This guy, yeah. he just doesn't even test the, the mountain before he climbed it. I forgot what his name was, the French climber. And yeah, he just, yeah, 
he he would you know what impressed me about that documentary the most it wasn't his climbing it was the hula hoop do you remember that part i do yeah i was laughing so hard <laughs> yeah that's awesome <laughs> all right that is another question oh that's another great movie people should definitely watch sometime yeah. if the you like the genre what we're discussing fits right in philosophy and you know, and all that uh, philosophy of, of, of adventure. <laughs> well, the, I remember in the free soul, they did a brain scan of Alex and it showed like, I don't know if it was, I'm, I'm being, I'm um, not, not verbatim. I'm just taking the words out like a word. I think the fear gene, which I don't even know what it's really called, but the fear gene was not really being activated in his brain. And they were saying a lot of the people that are like that and probably in your brain too, there's something that, doesn't get triggered by most people where like, I should be afraid of this. I shouldn't really do this. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I mean, there, there's a little, um, it, it, interestingly that we're talking about all this, when I drive to school, I drive about an hour to school every day. Um, and uh, I'm actually listening to the book um, Alone on the Wall by Alex Honnold. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting um, because uh that came up um, in the book where he says, he, he says he, he, you know, in the movie, they really made it look like, um, like, oh, there's something, this guy's a freak. There's something wrong with him. And he, he just doesn't get scared like everybody else. And he, that actually comes up in the book. And he actually says, you know, though, that's crap. He uh, says, that's not true. He's like, I get scared, you know? And um, I can't quite remember how he explained it. Um, I should go back and listen to that part of the book again, but see, so that's a little bit of the Hollywoodization of things, right? You know, oh, yeah. where it's like, well, you gotta, gotta explain it somehow. And wow, this guy is amazing. He's, his brain is different. Yeah. Um, just like anybody else. He's just really good at what he does and he's fully committed and super tuned in. You know, well, you know what I laugh at? I know some amateur climbers and they got mad because they said, oh, Alex is making, you know, it, it, it's too dangerous and he's making it look easy. And people are just like, you know what? For me, who's not a climber, he made it exciting and made me want to become more interested in the whole climbing genre. So these people that were just not, you know, not doing it professionally, but they were getting mad because I said, it seems like whenever somebody's on top, they just want to knock you down regardless. And these amateur climbers who thought that he was promoting bad climbing because it wasn't safe. You know, just let him do his thing and do your thing and don't worry about it. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate that they feel that way. And it's it's also unfortunate that that is the, um, you know, that's the, the attitude these days, right? Is that safety <clears throat> is actually could be, it, it, it's it's becoming more and more pervasive in our culture where safety is actually not considered to be the responsibility of an individual. Um, safety is always left up to someone else. How could they let that person do that? How could they not have blocked that off? So someone didn't do that. You know, how can they, you know, and, and actually that's coming up more and more in national park caves where um, you know, Risk is being evaluated sometimes by people who um, aren't even participating in the activity, right? And so um, it, it goes back to our culture, and and of course the federal government is at the heart of our heart of our culture. Um, 
and yeah, there's a big thing about risk out there and, and, and safety and, and the, the driving message is it's, you know, uh, it's someone else's responsibility. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, when you're in a cave, I can tell you right now, it does not matter, you know, it's, it's all on you. Like I said, you know, there's no access to resources. I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of form you filled out or whatever, you're still in the exact situation you're, you're in. And the only way you're going to get out of it is by getting out of it, <laughs> you know, and you can get injured doing anything. You can get injured or killed walking across the street. But as a pioneer, you're, you have to try things that have never been done before. And there's always going to be an element of danger. And if you yeah. always were so safety conscious, nothing new would ever be found. Nothing new would ever be done. So I'm, I have the same mentality as you. It's like the safety should be up to the individual. If they're not hurting anybody else, they're not bringing anybody else down with them let them do what they, you know, what they're doing and let them, you know, let them worry about their own life. Yeah. Safety is an illusion. I mean, that's yeah. what it comes down to. And I, I feel pretty good about kind of wrapping up the the talk with that, you know, um, giving people, people that, that to think about is that, um, you know, just think, just think we, we just got to do some, some thinking right now. And, and and that's not a political message. I know, unfortunately, like the way things are saying that people are probably going to associate with that with one side or another. I'm saying it completely independent. I just want people to think. I don't really care what conclusion people arrive at, you know, but don't, don't let your life be, don't let someone else be responsible for your life, um, both the safety of your life and the happiness of your life, you know. That is a perfect way to end this interview. Yeah. yeah. Chris, it was so great to have you on the show. And I promise this one will definitely be aired. As I mentioned in the beginning of the show, I had about an hour and a half inter interview with you last time. Lost everything. Never was able to air it. But now I'm glad because I actually like this format better. So now it's on radio, but I'm also on YouTube. So people can see it all over the world if they want. And cool. uh, when you come out with your book, please come back. I want to talk about it. I will. Yeah. That sounds great, Rich. Thank you for, you know, hanging out in my contact and for, for all these years and reaching out again. It was, it was a pleasure to do the interview. It was fun. Yeah. It was great having you on. Thanks. That wraps up the latest episode of the Clause Corner. A huge thanks goes out to Chris Pozarski for taking time from exploring to be on the show. And I would also like to thank you, the viewer, for tuning in every week. Enjoy your day, everyone. <laughs>